0: If you have a Bible, we're back in Mark. Every week, something different. Maybe in the same book, but we'll cover different subjects. Mark chapter 9. And the title of the message is, How Does God Define Greatness? So, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, and it says, And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, And they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, The same shall be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whosoever shall receives me receives not me, but him that sent me. And Father, I just ask that you'll speak clearly to all of us today what it means to be great in your kingdom and what it means to be lastable and servantable. And just thank you that you'll do that for us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, how do we define greatness in America? Because here it's surely not being a street sweeper. I mean, they're not on your great list generally. So we love the person that can achieve success. Everyone that admires the person that is a great achiever, whether it's in business, sports, or politics. Everybody wants to take a look at the list of the 10 greatest actors, the 10 greatest pop songs, the 10 richest people in the world or past presidents. Because greatness in America is defined how? It's defined by the world's applause. That's generally how it's defined. And the campaign slogan of our current president is what make America Humble again? No, make America great again. And I don't think by that, make America great again, that he wants us to be praying for our enemies, turning the other cheek, and experiencing a true revival of holiness, even though that would make America great again. So he wants us to be great as far as being a superpower in military might, economic ways, and all kinds of other achievements. That's what they're looking at. But even in churches in america greatness is typically defined by numbers church plants income and name recognition everybody wants to have their name recognized so somebody has a spiritual experience 10 hours on the operating table dead and i came back they want to write a book and it becomes a bestseller so you know if peter james and john think about it, if they live today they would have been asked to appear on TBN, on TV, offered a lot of money to write a book as the result of their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And it would have been titled Mountain Aglow, Experiencing the Glory of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. That would have been the title, and it would have been number one. In the interview, they'd have interviewed them on TBN, and it would have sounded like when they interviewed one of these sports guys after they won a championship game. They always say this, don't they? Tell me, Peter, what went through your mind as you saw Jesus transfigured with Moses and Elijah? And Peter probably would have answered, if it was today, just like all our sports heroes do, well, I I just didn't know what to say. It it was awesome. (laughs) And the interviewer, well, Peter, you are truly a great man to have been there because he was there. That would have made him great. But tonight, we want to look at how does God define greatness? And we're going to look at three things. The first thing we're going to look at is, number one, is the hidden teaching. So we have here, Jesus comes back to his main area of ministry through all this time up through Mark has been where? Anybody want to venture a guess? It's Wednesday night, you can say it. Galilee. Galilee is where he's been. But he comes back here and he avoids the big crowds. He doesn't want to get in crowds, doesn't want to be known. And that's what we have here in verse 30. And it says, and they departed thence and passed through Galilee... And he would not that any man should know it. And the four at the beginning of the next verse tells us why. For he taught his disciples. So he wants to teach his disciples. He's got a big thing coming up. If you read Luke's account, it says that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Because from here on out, the big event that's coming up is what? The cross. And it is looming before him like a giant building. And is casting its shadow over everything he's doing right now with his disciples. And he wants to teach them about the cross. So we talked about this before. He predicts his suffering and death on the cross three times here in three chapters. So he's already done it once. We have back in 831, chapter 831, where it says he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. And we have it here in verse 31 where he says, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. You turn over one other chapter in chapter 10, verse 33. It says, behold, he tells his disciples, we go up to Jerusalem and the son of man shall be delivered unto the chief priests, unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him, scourge him, shall spit upon him, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So every time he adds a little something in there, So the difference between what we have here in chapter 9 and what we have in chapter 8 is the first time he tells them about it in chapter 8 where he ends up rebuking Peter, he just says he's going to be rejected by the scribes and the elders and the chief priest. But here he changes a little bit. He says here he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. So we find out here it's not just the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders that kill him, but Men. So it's not just Jews. Who all is guilty for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not just the Jews. It's all of humanity. It's men. So it's us, right? You put it all together, and what you have in chapter 10 is, and he says that the chief priests and the scribes are going to deliver them into the hands of the Gentiles so it's all the world and we have to realize that you think oh i wouldn't have done what they did no we would have i'm telling you that is the unregenerate heart of man would crucify the lord jesus christ the fact you sit here and think oh i would have never had any part of that is just because you're redeemed and that's the only reason why because when we look at the crimes the wars and the unspeakable i mean when you read the news there are things going on in this world on a daily basis the city of louisville the city of shelbyville that are unspeakable and they use the term man's inhumanity to man and that has gone on since time began since the first person was created and that is the way unregenerate man is when david numbered the people in second samuel 24 god says you shouldn't have done that Shouldn't have numbered the people. You're going to get chastised for it. I'm going to give you a choice. I'm going to give you three choices. The prophet Gad came to him and he says, look, you can either have seven years of famine. Number two, you can flee three months before your enemies. Or number three, you can have three days of pestilence in the land. And what did David choose? He chose the pestilence. And here's why. He says, I am in deep distress. But he says, let us fall Into the hands of God, for his mercy is great. But he said, But do not let me fall into the hands of men, because man's mercy is not great. And what we need to understand through this is just as men mistreated, reviled, and crucified our Lord, they will do the same things to us. It's coming. It's already happening. It's always happened to Christians in this world. And here's the reason why, because sinful man who is energized and their father is the devil is operating by an antichrist spirit. If you're a Christian, that spirit operating in man, they hate you. They really do. And if you shine your light, even in America now, you will be persecuted in some form. But to notice what it says there in verse 31, it says the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. Isn't that funny? It is a present tense in the Greek. He is delivered. What hasn't happened yet? But here's what we need to see with that. The process has begun. It has begun and everything was decided ahead of time. Do we know that? This this all wasn't an accident that happened that took anybody by surprise because who's the one who's doing the delivering who's the one doing the delivering so we all know that Judas betrayed the Lord he said that back in chapter 3 when he chose him he knew it from the beginning the Lord knew who the person was but the one delivering Jesus we know from Isaiah 53 and acts 2 is who the father the father is the one that's doing this this is a passive he's being delivered into the hands of men It's like the Father is the one sending Him to the hands of men. Acts 2.23 says this, Him, speaking of Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God predetermined who would be the counsel to deliver Him up, and He knew it. When was Jesus crucified? Before the foundations of the world, it was all planned out every jot and tittle. Acts 2.23 says him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But he's speaking to these people, Peter is, isn't he? And he says, God ordained all this. He predestinated this. We need to understand God is sovereign over every event that happens, even the wickedness and evil of sinners he is in charge of. It's all been predestined. None of it takes him by surprise. Because Peter goes on and says, ye, he's pointing the finger at these people. Oh, God determined it. But you guys aren't puppets. You're still responsible. He says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's where we see divine sovereignty and human responsibility perfectly laid out. Judas He was picked ahead of time as the one that was going to betray the Lord. But yet the Lord says it had been better for you if you had never been born because Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. But what exactly he wanted to do was exactly what God wanted him to do. He wasn't compelled other than by his evil nature is the way that works. So men are responsible. He says you have taken, but God predetermined who would do it. Jesus tells them all that, he tells them what he says in verse 31, and the disciples just quote-unquote, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying, that's what it says in verse 32. Look, it says, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. In Luke's account it says, but they understood not this saying and it was hid from them that they perceived not. So it had to be a divine revelation, it was kept from them what he was saying, We can read those words and it's plain English to us. It would have been plain Aramaic to them when he spoke it because Jesus wasn't speaking King James. He was speaking Aramaic. But what exactly he meant by those words were hidden from them. And it didn't fit. And here's the reason. Part of it was it didn't fit their idea of the coming Messiah. So we understand that when Jesus uses the term son of man. Why does he say that? The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Because that is the term that's used of the coming Messiah when he comes into his kingdom. You may not remember this, but when we looked at Daniel 7, several Sundays back, Daniel seven thirteen says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. That term is telling them that's going to bring them back. They knew Daniel 7. They're looking for this son of man. Who is he? And Jesus says, that's me. But in Daniel seven, this is the one they're looking for. This son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And there was given him the son of man, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And that is the way that the Jews understood how the coming of this Messiah was going to be. That it was going to be dominion and glory and everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will not pass away. And I'm saying suffering and death don't fit into that. It doesn't fit into that puzzle they would put together. They've been taught that for years and years and years. That is the way the Jews thought about the coming Messiah. And nothing else is going to make sense or going to be received by them. So God had to open their eyes. That'd be like me coming in here one night and saying, look, I got news for y'all. There is not going to be a rapture. And I'm telling you, people be looking at me like you're all right now. You'd be like, I don't understand that. And I not only that, I don't receive it. And they'd be like, I don't want to hear any more about it either. You know, They'd be like, I don't know where Brother John got his revelation, but I don't want to know either. I don't like the sound of it. And that's what it's saying about them. That's why it says there in that verse 32, it says, but they understood not that saying, they were afraid to ask him. I didn't like his other explanation to give him back in chapter 8. So there's two things going on here when it says they were afraid to ask him. And one, I think number one, I think they remembered when he said it the first time, it hadn't been that long ago. And he told Peter, you know, I'm gonna suffer, die, and be raised on the third day. Peter got in there and started rebuking him, raising questions, all oh, Lord, that's not gonna be. Well, they remember that. The Lord didn't pat him on the back and thank him for his encouragement. What did he tell him? Get thee behind me, Satan. So these guys aren't dimwits. We aren't getting into that again. We're not gonna get rebuked like Peter did. That's part of it there. You know, I'm sure they're just sitting there talking they were afraid to ask I'm like I'm sure go ahead Peter they're walking along why don't you ask him he's like uh uh-uh. once burnt twice learnt I'm not asking him <laughs> nah. and then, come on John why don't you ask him John you're close to him he's like I think I can live without knowing what he means I think I can get along here and then they get to Thomas come on Thomas why don't you ask him and he would say I doubt it would do any good <laughs> so that's where they're at right that's one thing I think, they just didn't want to know. But the second thing is, like I said, they were afraid to ask and they didn't want to know. Like I said, they didn't want to know exactly what it meant. So you ever got a letter from somebody? You get this letter and you see who it's from and you're realizing, I probably I'm gonna to have to read this, but I really don't want to right now. I don't think I want to know what's in it. And so you set it down and you think, well, maybe I'll read it later or maybe it might accidentally get misplaced permanently. And that's kind of like where they are here. How many times do we really not want to think about what it means to be a Christian in the terms of Jesus? Because he says we're not above him. And we all like to hear the faith things and the healing manifested and the prosperity and the blessings and all that. But we have to see that what is the main thing and purpose of Jesus's ministry? Suffering and death. And that's what we saw in chapter eight, isn't it? He says, that's the path I'm headed. And if you're going to make it in, it's the same path you're headed. So to know the Lord is to know that. And we should want to know that because we're going to be like him. And that's why Paul, Paul didn't shrink back from that knowledge. He wasn't putting that letter away where he doesn't want to read it one day. Paul says this, that I may know him. Philippians 3.10. Paul says, I want to know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of. Of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. We all say we want to know and love Jesus. Paul's saying that's what it means to know him, to know the power of his resurrection. That's good, the power of his resurrection. But even more than that, the fellowship of his sufferings. And through that, we'll be conformed unto his death. And he's saying, That way I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Because I'll tell you, Paul went through a lot in 1 Corinthians 4, but he said, we are the off-scouring of the earth. He talks in 1 Corinthians 4, they had the Romans when they would conquer the enemies. They would have a parade that would come through Rome. In the beginning, all the soldiers and all the glory is going to them. But at the end, they had the captured prisoners in chains and dirty and bloodied and their last. And they take them into the arena. To fight the animals. They're dead. They have the sentence of death. And Paul says, that's me. That's the Christian life. Sentence of death. The last. The offscouring of the earth. And that's what it means to be a Christian. So the second thing I want to look at here, we've looked at the first thing, is... So we've looked at the hidden teaching and here we're going to look what I'm going to call the unhealthy discussion. So they keep walking, it says, when we read until they get to Capernaum. And it says they get to the house, the house. There's an article in front of it, and it's probably the house of Peter and Andrew, more than likely. Don't know for sure, but that's where I think it was. And so when they get there, Jesus asked them a question. Verse 33, you can read with me. It says he came to Capernaum. And being in the house, he asked them a question. What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? I don't know how when they were walking along exactly how they walked along. So I don't know if he overheard them. It doesn't tell us. Or if he just knew. Could be either way, couldn't it? But I'll tell you one thing. Whether we say things out loud or think them out loud and our intentions aren't good or even if they are God knows it all, doesn't he? I had a prisoner tell me he just didn't know if God knew everything. He thought he'd find out one day. I said, no, I want to tell you, he knows everything. Let's go where I took him the other day. It's Psalm 139. If you would, turn there, please. Put something in Mark. I just want us to look at this. The first 12 verses of Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 1, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. You compassed my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. And look what he says in verse 4. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it all together. You have set me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I, I can't attain unto it. And look what he says. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea Even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. And how many times do we think what we're thinking in the dark or saying in the dark or whatever is somehow escaping the Lord? He's saying he sees it all. There's nowhere we can go. It's not what we say only in the light that's heard. He knows our thoughts before we ever think them. He knows what we're going to say before we ever say it. And so he knew what these disciples were discussing all along the way. We get a picture of them. They're walking along this path. I doubt if they were just all 13 of them just walking side by side on the path. It's probably a narrow path they're on. And I kind of get the impression Jesus is walking ahead. And they're kind of lagging behind a little bit, having their little discussion, kind of elbowing, shoving, arguing with each other over who's going to be the greatest, you know? (laughs) James, I think I'm going to be like, oh, get out of here, you know? That's the way guys talk about stuff. Come on, man. That's not going to be you or whatever. Well, you got to think about this. This picture here is almost funny. Humorous, in a sense, because Jesus has just told them what? He's just told them about His upcoming suffering and death. And I guarantee you, as He's walking, that's a heavy thought for Him. It is. We know that. John 12 says this. When He talked about that, He said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. It troubled Him. He's a man. He knows what's coming no small thing to him. He's dealing with the fact that he is going to be God's sacrificial lamb bearing the load, the tremendous weight of the sins of the world. And it's troubling his soul deeply. And here he is walking ahead of these guys. He's dealing with this problem. He's just told him what he knows clearly what's going to happen and what's coming. And they're on their way to Jerusalem to have it happen. And here these guys are. They didn't get anything of what he said. They're in another world and they're following behind. Like I said, pushing, shoving each other, debating on who is going to be the greatest when their master sets up his throne when they get to Jerusalem. I mean, we got two different worlds going on here. (laughs) And so they get to the house. And Jesus asked them, well, what are you guys arguing about? You imagine that getting exposed by the Lord Jesus Christ and they are embarrassed down to their sandal straps. Mm -hmm. They are. Look in verse 34. It says, And they came to Capernaum and being in the house, he asked in verse 33, What is it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? In verse 34, but they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. But they held their peace. Because their hearts were just opened up by the word of God. The word of God in physical form. And the exact same expression, but they held their peace, is used of the Pharisees when they had the man with the withered hand, and they're thinking those thoughts. Is he going to heal on the Sabbath day or not? And Jesus told them, is it lawful? I know exactly what you guys are thinking, you in your hearts, in your evil hearts. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? To save life? or to kill. The same thing, deep conviction because it says the exact same words, but they held their peace. Have you ever had that happen where the Word of God just locates you and it just brings guilt and shame to where your mouth is shut? There's nothing you can say and that's what's going on there. So we can be critical of these guys. Like who are these guys? What are they doing arguing about who's going to be the greatest? But we are guilty of the same thing. We are the disciples, aren't we? Pride manifests itself in a lot of ways, doesn't it? And we have to be on guard because there's so many ways that we want to let people know how spiritually great we are and where we're at on the spiritual ladder. A gift, discernment, wisdom, insights. We like to let people know that sometimes, don't we? You have to really watch. You know, Peter, James, and John, I'm sure that in that arguing that was going on, they were probably saying, hey, wait a minute, fellas, who's the greatest? It's got to be one of us three because we were up on the mountain. None of you guys got to go up there. We were handpicked. In fact, later on, James and John thought that experience granted them the right to sit on the right hand or on the left hand. (laughs) So you're out there thinking, all right, I'm never saying another word. I'm not going to share another scripture in a meeting or operate a gift at church. I don't want to be lifted up in pride. That's not the answer, though, is it? (laughs) Man, is it quiet here. What did I say? Look, the answer is this. The answer is not, I'm never going to operate a gift because I don't want to seem like I'm proud or whatever. The answer is 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul tells the Corinthians, he says at the end of chapter 12, he says, covet earnestly the best gifts or earnestly desire the best gifts. And then he says this. He says, but yet I will show you a more excellent way. So his point is, I want you to earnestly desire the best gifts. That's it. He said, but I'm going to show you a more excellent way. So you don't want to do things. You don't want to desire the gifts to be noticed. But so that the excellent way is that you can minister to your brothers and sisters in love. Because without love, he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 13, being the motivating factor, you get nothing he says though i have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though i have all faith so that i could remove mountains he says and have not love he says i am nothing so the point is not not to speak something because you don't want to be proud when the lord's giving you or you don't want to be on the other extreme is you're saying you know i'm afraid to Because of what people might think. No, the thing is, I'm going to, if God has given me something, I want to share it. Not so I'll be noticed, but so that I can edify the church. That's all I'm trying to say. We want to make sure our motives are right when we operate the gifts. Amen. Amen. Nothing wrong with operating the gifts. I would say like Paul says, covet earnestly the best gifts. We need to see that. We just need to make sure we're doing it for the right motivation. Amen. 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 So he gives the answer to us here. The question of pride, position, and desire for the greatness. Here's the answer to that, right here, verse 35. And it says this and it says, He sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, here's the answer the same shall be last of all and servant of all. So he sits down. That's what rabbis would do, they would sit down and teach. And that is what he is doing here. And in one sentence, Jesus gives us the essence of what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. The first shall be last, the greatest shall be least. And the rulers in the kingdom will be those that are servants. That's what he's saying there. There is no greater contrast between the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of this world in this world that in God's definition of greatness what it means to be great because the world defines great as those that have money and influence power over others people that admire them people that they can get their way and do it their way it's all about me that's the way the world would define greatness but God says the great are those that are busy serving others and busy about meeting others needs whatever those needs are He's saying that is the truly great person. The Greek word there where it says, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be least of all and servant of all. That servant is the common Greek word for the person that waits tables. So a servant is at the beck and call of his master. That's what that word means there. The people of that day, they thought to be a servant was demeaning and undignified, this is what they would say. How can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That was the thought of that day. That's the way they thought. And Jesus taught us just the opposite, didn't he? Because Luke twenty-two twenty-seven 27 says, for I am among you as one who serves. And what did he do? He gave us an example of that. He taught us what it means to be a Christian in John 13. John 13, do you remember that? It says, after he dined with the 12, he took off his robes, girded himself, took a towel, poured water in a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. That's what he began to do. And then he goes through the whole thing with Peter, like, oh, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. He's like, I need to wash you. Well, then, hey, because if I don't, you have no part of me. And he's like, well, then wash my whole body. But after he was done, he went on to say this to him. He says, know you not, the Lord said, what I have done to you. You call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. And he says, if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy, Jesus said, are you if you do them. And Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve somebody? That's what Plato said. And Jesus says, that is the only way to true happiness. Serving is giving, isn't it? And he says what? It is more blessed To give than to receive. That's what the Lord said. So listen, we need to have a foot washing here. But I'm saying the whole idea of the foot washing is you do that and that's the end of it. No, the whole idea is you're doing that as a symbol. It's just like water baptism. Yeah, we should do it. But it's not just a one time thing. It should be an attitude we have towards each other, towards your brothers and sisters to serve them, whatever it takes. Put yourself down in front of them. None of us are that way naturally, are we? None of us are. So we're born to be selfish and full of pride. That's just the way all of us come into this world. And only the grace of God can deliver us from ourselves. Amen? And make us that way and to have that mentality. And if you would, look over in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the way we should be as Christians. Philippians 2 verse 1, it says, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, in other words, if you've experienced the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ is what he's saying there in essence. If he says if that is the way, Paul goes on in verse 2, he says then make my joy complete, fulfill ye my joy, and how can you do that? That you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And look, this would have been good for the apostles to have read, but Philippians wasn't written yet before they got on that road. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So that's the way we need to be isn't it? We're to have the mind of Christ. He says let that mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus where you're looking on others as more important than yourself. That's the servant mentality isn't it? that's what he's saying right there and the good news about that because if we have that kind of mentality then we will be great in God's eyes and all of us can attain that because it's not good looks which that's good news to me it's not gifts, abilities or being crafty none of those things that's not what makes you great in God's kingdom but a heart that loves one's neighbor and all of us by the grace of God can do that You don't even have to be somebody that's eloquent, can talk, or you may be shy backwards and everything else. But we can attain that. It's just the common task of serving others. That is how you obtain greatness in the kingdom of God. Because, listen, I can't be the greatest golfer in the world or the greatest this Saturday. None of us in here can be all those things. That's out of most people's attainments to be the greatest of anything. But we all, all of us in here can be great and the greatest in the kingdom of God if we just have a mentality and look to the Lord to serve each other and other people. And so what he does then next, if you go back to Mark, we're on point number three. So this is the classic illustration that he gives us here in verses 35 to 37. And he sat down, Jesus called the 12 and said unto them, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, servant of all, verse 36. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receives me. And whoever shall receive me receives not me, but him that sent him. So he's calling, there's a little child in that house somewhere. Could have been one of Peter's. Peter had a wife, he probably had kids. Could have been one of Peter's kids. Let's just say his name was Benjamin. Probably about three or four years old, and Jesus calls him over. He's got the disciples gathered around and he's teaching him, and he, come on, little Benjamin, come over here. And he's had to be small enough he put his arms around him, put his arms around that little boy. And he doesn't say something here that's interesting. He doesn't say in this account to become as a little children, does he? What does he say? He says, whoever receives one such children in my name. So to understand what he's saying there, We need to understand the culture of the time because their culture back then didn't idolize children and cater to little children like our culture does here, especially in America. Because back then, children had no power, no status, no rights, none of that. They were dependent, vulnerable, unlearned, and entirely subject to their father. My kids listening up. That's what they were. They thought of kids back then, not like little geniuses, but they were just people that had not arrived yet at all. They represented the lowest place you could be on the social scale. That's why he's picking a child. And that's why he's saying, "You need to receive such little children in my name." He's representing the lowest in society. They were insignificant. We don't look at children that way. Now, I'm not saying we look at our chibs as insignificant and whatever. They, they actually considered them property. They sometimes would sell little girls before a certain age. That's the way. They had no status at all, whatever. And he's saying we're to receive, serve, and minister to those that have no status, just like we're receiving him. So we should treat who we think is the lowest in this church, the lowest anywhere. We should treat them, he's saying, like you would receive or treat me, your Lord. That's what he's telling them there. So what are the characteristics of little kids, little three and four year olds? A lot of times they don't listen to you. They're probably ungrateful and they can't pay you back. And that's the way it is a lot of times. And Jesus says... I'm telling you, even with the little three- and four-year-olds, don't ignore them. I mean, literally, literal kids is what I'm saying, because he's saying, I don't ignore them, didn't he? Because when they tried to shoo them away, at one time, what, he said, don't do that. Let them come unto me, because such is the kingdom of God. So I think he's speaking metaphorically, and I also think he's speaking literally. So we shouldn't just ignore little kids, should we? I mean, they're watching us a lot more, I think, a lot of times than we realize What is he really trying to say? That we should give importance, receive to the things and the people that are despised, unworthy, lowly. Those that can't pay you back, either financially or with some kind of position. We all know what I'm talking about, right? A lot of times it's not necessarily money you want out of somebody, but you're nice to those ones that it kind of puts you somewhere. Or they're somewhere and you want to be there. So look back, if you would, just turn a few chapters back to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, and we'll look at the beginning in verse 31. Matthew 25:31, it says, "And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats." And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hungered and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took you in or naked and clothed you? Or when saw we you sick or in prison and came unto you? And the king shall answer and say unto them, truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least. Isn't that what we're talking about? Of these my brethren, he says, You have done it unto me. That's exactly what our verse is saying. And then shall he also say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in naked. And you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. And then shall they answer him also, saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or, or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister unto you? And he answered unto them, truly, I say unto you, and as much as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. Well, those are sobering words, aren't they? Because a lot of times, don't we just kind of get a little bit too busy to think about others? And that's some sobering things right there. Because we think, oh, well, we're just ignoring so-and-so. And And the Lord says, no, in ignoring so-and-so, you were ignoring me. That's what he's saying. So how does that work out? I could give a lot of illustrations or examples. But one time I was working with a brother in a nursing home. And the help there at that nursing home was Terrible, except for a couple of nurses. Other than that, to help, I'm looking at these people thinking you treat these old people like dirt. Because they'd act nice as long as the families were around, all smiley. Oh, yes, Mrs. Sessions. S- as soon as the families left, literally, some of them would cuss them out. I'd be like, you have got to be kidding me. I worked with this brother in this nursing home for several weeks. And after a while, you become like part of the furniture. The staff doesn't even know you're around. And you see how things really operate in one of those nursing homes. I'm not saying they're all like that. So part of what we were doing in there, we were painting door jams to the rooms. And we had a lot of door jams to paint, a whole lot of them. So I had this brother painting these door jams. And I had to go off on another part of the building to do something else. And I came back and don't see him. He wasn't there. And I'm thinking, where are you? No paint door jam, no make money, <laughs> is what I was thinking. I'm going up and down the hall, looking for my brother. they supposed to be painted by door jabs, and I don't see him. Finally, I look in the room, and there I see him. I'm walking by, he didn't know I was watching him. He's gently lifting this old lady's head up and putting the pillow under her head. I'm gonna tell you, here's where I was. My first thought was, we are never going to get anything else done if we are constantly stopping to help these people out because the staff is terrible and there's needs everywhere. We could be doing this all day long. That was what I thought. We got to be busy or I'm going to be out of business. And I got convicted about that. I did. And I realized, you know what he's doing? He's just extending the mercy of Jesus to this person, to this lady. And I asked him about it later. You know what he told me? I believe I got this right. That he walked by, airs her head half hanging off that bed and nobody there to help her. And so he stopped what he was doing and went in there and helped this lady out. I'm saying, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Extending the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Want to help her out, lift her head up, put her pillow under there, make her comfortable because nobody else is looking out for her. Isn't that the Christian thing to do? It really is. More than just making however much per hour needed to make. No big deal, was it? Not really. So, there's a lot of things that you can do for people that they can't pay you back. That lady could never pay him back. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You do things to the least. The people that can't pay you back, like the little child, they can't pay you back, might not even tell you thanks. That's not what we're doing it for. Because this man wrote this At the close of life, the question will not be how much have you got, but how much have you given? Not how much have you won but how much have you done? Not how much have you saved, but how much have you sacrificed? Not how much were you honored, but how much have you served? Amen. And I'll tell you a great illustration of that is Dave Stesch. Never made a big deal about it when he was alive, as far as I know. That brother gave and helped out so many people, and man, did they show up at his funeral. I now, mean, I've never been so impressed with somebody living the Christian life as that, as I've ever seen. Went out of his way to help people when it hurt him big time. I mean, that's convicting. It's the way he lived. And I think one of the greatest ways, I want to say this, that we can serve one another is through our prayers. Prayers that we do in the closet. Prayers no one knows about, but we're laboring for others that we know have needs. I'm going to tell you, if it's a matter of you bringing me over a plate of cookies and praying for me for a half an hour, I'll take the half hour prayer any day. I will. Like your cookies. I'll thank you for them and eat them. But listen, in Colossians 4.12, Paul wrote this. He says, Epaphras, he writes this to the Colossians, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you. And here's what it says about Epaphras, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete, in all the will of God. Now that is love. He's laboring, it says, fervently in prayers for those people in that church that they'll make it. Now that is love. Uh, Lisa and I were talking earlier today, and I don't know if you all remember, but after the first of the year, I taught several messages on prayer, and I believe people were responding here. I do. You know, you, you tend to do Just like when you talk about reading your Bible regularly, it kind of starts getting, oh, yeah, I think I better start doing that more. Well, we talked about prayer, and I think a lot of people were praying here. I really do. Looking back on that, because it wasn't long after that. I mean, right about that time, I thought the presence of God was a lot more manifest in our meetings here. And people and trials were doing much better. And I'm saying, I'm wondering, have we gotten off track of that? Because we're upset about other things. And I think we need to get back on our knees and amen saying that nice for the sake of our brothers and sisters that need prayer because we got some people that need some manifestations and we need to be pressing in for that amen that's what i like to see happen and that's what's in my spirit is going to happen for them so how does god define greatness jesus said if any man desires to be first the same shall be last of all and servant of all. It's a paradox, isn't it? Like if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. It's a paradox. The greatest and the first Are the last in God's kingdom and servants of all. That's the way it is. And it's the opposite. We got to get our minds retrained from the way the world teaches us. Because we think if I do this and nobody knows about it, we got to remember, he says your Heavenly Father sees what you're doing and He will reward you. And we got to trust that that's true. Much greater than having a reward that somebody knows that you've done something for them or how great you are spiritually wanting to be the greatest in men's eyes. We want to be the greatest in God's eyes. And he says, those are the servants doing it unto the least. We just read that in Matthew 25. And that is the heart of God, isn't it? Talk about we want to know the Lord. The heart of God gives, and that should be our heart, to give and give and give without any thought of being repaid. And you're saying, well, that's just not my heart most of the time. And I'm saying that's where the grace of God comes in because that's not naturally in anybody's heart. I've already said that. But here we can take courage from this fact, can't we? Those disciples, they're sitting there arguing while Jesus is up there walking ahead of them in consternation over the cross. And they're arguing about who should be the greatest. That's pretty carnal, isn't it? Did he get rid of them? Did not get rid of them. He says, I'm going to teach y'all. You need to straighten up. And they did, didn't they? Because they all became servants. And so we just need tonight. This is not to be condemnation, but tonight's the night to start by the grace of God. I haven't been that way. There's too many times I haven't been that way. <laughs> preach, you, you preach messages to yourself. But tonight is, is I'm going to obey that. I'm going to obey what the Lord said. I'm going to be the servant of all as he gives me opportunities. Just have to be willing to obey. And this man named Howard Hendricks said this. He says, God's not looking for more stars. He's looking for more servants. Isn't he? <laughs> Just make our prayer be like this song, and we'll end on this Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my will and make it thine, and it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own, and it shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Amen? We can do that. All of us can do that by the grace of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us tonight and ask that you'll move on all of us, Lord, to be servants as the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what The Christian life is all about be willing to have that mind that you had to put others before ourselves and their needs before our own needs, Lord, and to be willing to minister your grace, your spirit, your life to others. And I ask you, Father, that you'll do that for all of us here. We pray that in Jesus name. Amen.